If you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Corinthians this, um, well, I'd say this week we are, but for the next several months we'll be studying through this, this epistle. We call it the, the autobiography of a bleeding heart. It's Paul laid bare in a way that he has never been in any other epistle. His heart is on his sleeve. He's pouring himself out in ministry among these people. They have not responded the way that he would want them to respond. They've turned their backs on him. It's been a roller coaster of a relationship with them. And so he's writing to them. And we see the curtain come down and Paul just lays it all out on the line. It's an incredible book that shows Paul's discouragement, but also the very real and honest and raw encouragement that he receives from the Lord in hopes that our hearts might receive the same kind of encouragement as we walk down the path of life that is often difficult and long. But we do not walk alone. Our God walks it with us every step of the way. If you don't have a goal, you'll never reach it. If you don't have a goal, if you don't, if you don't set a goal for yourself, if there's not one that's been set for you, then you're never going to get there. For me, first thing I thought of with this was my elliptical. This is the elliptical set up in my room. It's a lot easier to get a picture of it with me on, not on it than with me on it. Um, but this thing, I get on it, and what happens is it's got these pre-settings uh, there like that I can, it'll say, like, you're going to run for 30 minutes, and this is the resistance, and this is how fast you need to run. I don't know why I obey the elliptical. I don't know why it gets to tell me what I do. But uh, it, it gives me a goal. I need to go this fast for this long. And it helps me persevere. It helps me get through that time. If I just got on the elliptical and said, well, I'm just going to go for a while until I feel like I've worked out enough, probably like three minutes into it, it's like, man, I've been, I've been going at it. It's probably time for a cookie break, you know? And, but that goal, having that carrot, knowing where I'm going, helps me actually accomplish the task of why I'm there. It's to get in shape, hopefully. And and so this goal helps me get there. We as a church, if it's important to have a goal in exercise, how much more important is it for us as a church to have a goal? Where are we going? What are we trying to do? Do we just kind of come here every week and have a good time and, you know, sing some songs and, and go our separate way? Where, where in the world is God taking us? What is our goal? And we see from Scripture a pretty clear goal. This is a picture of, this is a snapshot of our, um, our website, a screenshot. And right there at the top, we have a very clear goal, is to present everyone complete in Christ. So we, be- we believe we're here to do. And that's not something we made up. That's right from Scripture. That was the heart of the Apostle Paul. He said, we make it our goal, our ambition, to, to present every man complete in Christ. And what that means is, not only do we want everybody on earth to know Jesus, we want him, them to become like Jesus. We want Jesus to be fully formed in them, because we believe that's what magnifies this Jesus that we're singing about this time of year. And it glorifies God as his Son is lifted up. And so our goal as a church is to see everyone presented complete, mature, fully formed in Christ. And everything that we do ought to be funneling in toward this goal. Every service, every outreach, every relationship, everything that we're doing in this life should be working toward this goal. And then when everybody on earth is fully formed, fully complete in Christ, then we can quit, right? We can stop doing this thing and you all can go do the next thing. I don't think that's going to happen on this side of glory, and so we press onward. But the question is, though, how do we do this? How do we accomplish this task? How do we see everybody presented complete in Christ? And for someone that gives us an example in about the most extreme way possible, we turn to Stephen in Acts. 
Stephen was a man who spoke the truth. He was a part of this mission to point people to Jesus and to see them complete in him. And he would speak truth even when it wasn't convenient. He said some things to the the leaders in the synagogue that they didn't like. In fact, they didn't like it to the point that they wanted to kill him. And in Acts chapter 7, it says, when they heard this, when they heard these words that Peter was preaching, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, and here it is, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw Jesus. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As these rocks were pummeling him, he keeps his eyes heavenward and he says, Father, I'm coming home. He did not take his eyes off of Jesus. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. See, Stephen got it. The method for Stephen was to keep his eyes on Jesus. And even until his last breath, you hear what he said? He says he's about to be killed by these men who are stoning him. He's praying for them. Father, forgive them. Father, help them to become complete in you. His, his thoughts are still on what God has called them to. And how did he do that? It was by looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The best method that I know to live this Christian life, to do what we've been called to do, is to keep our eyes on Jesus. We don't need better programs, not more effort. We don't need better sermons, praise the Lord. We don't need bigger worship bands. We need to look to him. This is what Paul said in in 2 Timothy. He said, picture this firmly in your mind. As you walk forward, don't let this image get out of your head. Jesus descended from the line of David, raised from the dead. It says, keep forever in the forefront of your mind the risen Savior. In Hebrews 11, when, when he talks about, the author talks about all these men of faith who have done these incredible things for, for God by faith. How do they do that? How do we follow them and do what he's called us to do? He tells us in chapter 12, he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, think of him, picture him, fix your mind on him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, how do you walk this path? How do you accomplish this goal that I've set before the church and not lose heart? It's by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when we, like the Corinthian church, when we lose our way and we do things that displease God, when we become self-absorbed, when we get caught in sin, it's because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. I've said this before and I'll, I'll continue to say it, that it is the look that justifies, that means is how do we become right in God's sight? It's the eyes of faith that's looking to Jesus. Then how do we grow? Where do we go from there? It is the gaze that sanctifies. 
We looked to him to salvation. How do we grow? How do we become more, more holy? It's by keeping our eyes right there. That's the beginning and the end. It's everything. It's the look that justifies and it's the gaze that sanctifies. The best way to be a, a dynamic person in ministry is, as a believer, to be presenting everyone complete in Christ is to simply look at him and everything else is going to follow. And that's what we're going to see Paul presenting before us in today's verses. Looking to Jesus is what saves us. It's what sustains us. It gets, it's what gets us through the darkest of nights and onto the highest of peaks that we would see him. And yet we so easily take our eyes off of him. And our wandering eye catches something else that we think that's going to satisfy us. That we think that, that could save us. An alternate to Jesus. So how do we remain faithful? When discouragement and trials come our way, how do we maintain our joy? How do we hold on to our confidence? And the answer is and always will be to look to him. So when we look at him, what happens? What kind of a look is it? And that's the question that Paul wants to answer today as he's talking to the Corinthians. There's seven, seven looks, seven, seven things that come when we look at Jesus. First of all, it's a clarifying look. It's a clarifying look. Um, I never had the chance of really knowing my grandparents um, well. I always wanted to know them. Uh, my grandma, Joanne, she passed away when I was two weeks old. Um, she's holding me there on the couch. She, had, she died of cancer. Um, so I never really had a chance to know Grandma. Grandpa, a little bit more. Uh, he, I knew him. I, I, he died. He passed away also of cancer when I was five. So I got to know Grandpa a little bit better. I would have loved to have known them, though, to really have known them, for them to be sitting at my graduation, for, for, for me to have a relationship with them, to know the sound of their voice, and to know their personalities. I never got that chance. But the cool thing is, even though I never saw much of my Grandpa and Grandma in the flesh, I can see them very clearly in their children, most notably my dad. I mean, you look at that picture and tell me that you don't see Scott Franchino, <laughs> the big Italian nose, the Italian stubbornness, right? He's a, he is a carbon copy of Theodore Franchino. I can't see my grandpa, but I can see him in my dad. And even more so, I want to know my God. I really want to know him. And I want to see him. I want to know what he's like. I want to know what his voice sounds like. I want to see his face. And don't you just wish that sometimes God would peek from behind a cloud and say, Hey, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I look, for, look like. But just like my grandparents, although I can't see my God, I can see him picture perfect in his son. And Paul says here in verse 18 of chapter 3, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Paul says we can now look at the glory of God without a veil. In Exodus 34, Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God, and he sees a glimpse of God's glory. When he comes back down, Exodus says that his face is glowing. And the people just start freaking out. He's got a glowing face. We don't, know how to, we don't know how to deal with that. They start hiding from Moses' face. And this is just, they can't even handle the face of somebody else who has seen the glory of God. And he hadn't even seen the fullness of God's glory. He just caught a glimpse of it. And they couldn't even look at him. 
So Moses put on this veil when he came down to the people so that they wouldn't completely lose their minds. In verse 16, Paul says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, not only, we, we can actually look directly at the glory of the Lord without that veil. And when we turn to Jesus, the veil comes off and we can see the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We see God in blazing glory. Jesus said in the gospel, he said, if you've seen me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's the same thing. If you've seen me, if you've looked at me, it's as though you've looked at God himself because I am the exact representation of him. Now we can't see Jesus in the flesh today, but we can see him in the gospels. We know what God with flesh looks like. We know how he would interact with people. We can see him fully expressed in the person of Jesus. John MacArthur, who I got a lot of this outline this week from, he said this better than I could of of what we see when we see God. He says, all you need to know about God All God wants to disclose about himself, all the beauty of his character, all his attributes, communicable and incommunicable, all his love and loyalty and mercy and grace and power and wisdom, all his compassion and sympathy and care, all his saving purpose, all his ability to supply everything we could ever need, all things necessary to save us, all things necessary to empower us, all things necessary to console and comfort us, all things necessary to equip us, all things necessary to prepare us for service and for glory, everything we need is unveiled in Jesus Christ. Everything you could ever need to know about God and who he is and what he has for you is seen in the person of Jesus. So like my grandparents, you want to know God, you want to see God, look at his son. This is the clarifying look. We see God clearly represented in his son. The veil has been torn and we, we may enter. So first of all, it's a, tra- it's, a, it's a clarifying look. Secondly, it's a transforming look. Even cooler, I think, than the fact that I can see grandpa in my dad is the fact that now... I can start to see him in me. And here's a picture of the, the unholy trinity. <laughs> Look at those shorts, huh? What a tall drink of water. Here's me very literally looking up to my dad and to my grandpa. And as my dad became transformed into the image of Theodore Frankino. I am being transformed into the image of Theodore Scott Frankino, who is becoming like Theodore Frankino. The chaos continues, right? And Paul says something amazing here. He says, looking at Jesus not only shows us who God is, but looking to Jesus makes us like him. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. He says in verse 1, he says in the second part of this verse, he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, or from glory to greater increasing glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. 
He says the Holy Spirit, as we look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is doing this supernatural, incredible, miraculous work in our hearts. He's making us look like Jesus. And all we do is look at him. That's our job. The eyes of faith. He does the transforming work and we become just like the lamb that we're beholding. See, when I was growing up, I didn't have to develop this rule book of how to become like my dad. I didn't have to sit down, okay, if I do this, and I do this, and I do this. It was very simple. I watched him, I idolized him, and I became like him, okay? He wanted to shave, I wanted to get shaven too, even if I didn't even have any stubble. He did whatever he's doing there on the floor, I wanted to be right next to him doing the exact same thing. I wanted to be just like my dad, because I thought my dad was the coolest guy in the world. And as we behold him and idolize our God, we will become like him. The law said, here, try to follow these rules and become like God. Which really the purpose of the law was to show us how holy he was and how impossible it was for us in our own effort to become like him. But now the veil is removed and we can see Jesus. We can see God's glory fully in Jesus' face. And as we behold him, the Spirit makes us like him. It's a clarifying look, and it is a transforming look. Number three, it's a grateful look. You think about what's coming up this week for you in your life. And isn't it easy to become disgruntled? Isn't it easy to become overwhelmed with what's on your plate? And you look, man, I'm so busy. I'm so tired. Life is, is too difficult. And when we can complain to the Lord that he's just asking too much of us, and we look at the people and the politics and the things that we're involved with and it just becomes overwhelming and we say, God, it's too much on my plate. And then we say the lie and we say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Have you thought that recently? Have you said that maybe even out loud? Lord, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to, 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 to deserve this. And you're right. You don't deserve this. You know what you deserve? You know what I deserve? Paul says in verse 2, he says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Therefore, since by God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. You see, everything in our life that's not eternal damnation is a mercy of God. Getting something that we didn't deserve or not getting what we do deserve. Everything that is not hell is his mercy. He saved us because of his mercy, not because we deserved it. He's given us this task on earth to complete, not because we deserve it, but because of his mercy. Paul kept this in perspective, and I, I love this testimony from him in 1 Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He starts with this gratitude. Thanks, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He thanks God for the service that he's been called to. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 
the grace of our Lord was poured out on me. Not just a little sample. It was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul got it. He said, listen, I'm the worst of all sinners. I spat in the face of my God. I persecuted his church. There's no one who deserves damnation more than me. But then he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I am a trophy of God's mercy. He chose the worst of the worst to display to the world. He says, look what I saved. That wretched person, I saved him and I put him on display so that the world can see my grace, my mercy, my patience, my glory revealed in Paul. If anybody could have complained, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul in his ministry, as he was following Jesus, he was whipped, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was left at sea. If if anybody could complain about the lot in his life, it was Paul. But Paul always kept the perspective that his ministry was a mercy. Even his suffering was a mercy of God because it was transforming him into the image of God in Jesus. And therefore, he didn't lose heart. And neither should we. Every single thing that, the God, that our God takes us through is a part of his mercy. We've been shown the glory of God. Trans- we are being transformed into that glory. And we are shown his mercy as we share that as trophies of his mercy and grace to this world. Number four, it's a purifying and truthful look. It's a purifying and truthful look. Many of you, especially if you're a little bit older, may remember from the mid-80s the famous TV evangelist Jim Baker. Jim Baker was a man, him and his wife Tammy Faye, um, they preached the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, he'll fill your heart and he'll fill your pocketbook, your bank account, he'll give you uh, material means as well. And boy, did this guy practice what he preached. Jim Baker was caught. He, um, they had a ministry called Praise the Lord Ministries. People started to mock it and call it Pass the Loot Ministries or Providing Tammy Lipstick Ministries. They were caught selling $1,000 lifetime memberships. That part was legit. They would sell these $1,000 lifetime memberships to the ministry. And if you, if you bought this, then you got this annual three-night stay at this hotel that they were supposed to be building, primarily with the money that they were making. They sold tens of thousands of these memberships. It's a lot of money, but they only ever built one hotel. Not nearly enough for the amount of money that they were making and the people who would be staying in these every year. And what they did was they took this money, a lot of this money, and they put it into this thing they called Heritage USA, which was this Christian theme park. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. So he, make, he makes this Christian thing. I don't know what that looks like. like I, don't, I'm gonna, I won't go down that road. It'll get sacrilegious quickly. So he makes this Christian theme park, and then Jim pockets three and a half million dollars for himself. He's making all this money off people who think they're given to the Lord, and then he uses a big chunk of it as hush money for this secretary that he's been having an affair with, at least, if it was consensual. He gets sentenced to 45 years in prison has that reduced down to five. 
You talk about a man with mixed motives. You talk about a man who's using the name of Jesus for his own means. Peddling the word of God for profit. Shameful things. Now, I do want to mention briefly that um, from what it it's appears that, that Jim is actually, that God has worked in his heart, that he has repented. That there, it's a redemptive story. Um, that he has actually come out with a book and really turned his life around. And as a 70-year-old uh, man, God has gripped his heart. And it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful ending to an otherwise tragic story. But the point is that the Corinthian church, you know, when Paul left, this, these false teachers came in and have kind of influenced them. They're accusing Paul of coming to them, like Baker, with mixed motives. That he's peddling the word of God for profit. That he's coming to them for shameful, selfish motives. And, and, and Paul says here in verse 2, he says, rather, no, he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use the deception, nor, nor do we distort the word of God. And, and earlier in chapter 2, he said, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. He said, I'm not here to play games. I'm not here to use God for my own selfish means. He says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul's saying here is essentially this. When you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, it transforms you. It changes you. It purifies you. So that his desires become your desires. Your heart becomes his heart. And he's not saying here that he's perfect. We just read a verse where he was very clear that he saw himself as the worst of all sinners. But now Paul says, I can come transparent. I can come in truth. One of the most liberating things about the gospel is it allows us to stop playing games. We can stop hiding because when you fully look in the face of Jesus and you, be start, you become consumed with his glory and you start to become like him, you're obsessed with pointing people to how great your God is, not how great you are. And now I can come and I can speak the truth and I can say, listen, I am not great. On the contrary, I am a miserable, terrible, wretched man that deserved nothing but death. But God snatched me out of the snares of sin. And he's made me a trophy of his mercy. You need to know this Jesus. And it frees us to speak the truth of who we are and who our God is. It's a purifying and truthful look. Number five, it is a privileged look. It's a privileged look. God, uh, Jesus said these haunting words in, in um, Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So here's the truth. The gate, the gate is narrow. It says most people are going to walk that road to destruction. When you look at the, the statistics, uh, Operation World um, did a, a recent study that at most 4% of our world knows Jesus. 4% of this planet has beheld him and is being transformed into his image. 96% of this world is on a traffic jam on the road to destruction. And that should impact us. That should change the way we live today and tomorrow. And what Paul says here, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. He says, God's removed the veil. God has made through Jesus this way to come to him, to enter into his presence. But he says it's veiled to the 96% of this world that doesn't know him. 
says in verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It says God of this age, a reference to Satan, he says he's blinded people. Why can't they see him? Not because he's not revealing himself to us, but because their eyes are blind. How are the the eyes of this world blind? Paul said in Romans 1, he said, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie about God. And they've worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He says, Satan is selling this lie that most of the world is buying. That what we should be worshipping is not the one who has made everything, but the thing that he's made, namely ourselves. And we put ourselves on the throne and worship the creation instead of the creator. And we don't see Jesus. Most of the world has blinded themselves to the truth. We have a huge work to do. We just came off of Missions Month. We've been seeing the incredible things that God is doing in this world, and he's going to be continuing to do in this world. And our task is to present everyone, including that 96% that don't even know him, to present everyone completing Christ. This is a huge work. And you look at this world and how few of people have seen what we've seen and tasted what we have tasted. We come to understand that this look that we've been given is a privileged look that very few in the history of our planet have had. It's a privileged look. We are the lost sheep who willfully wandered from the flock, but the good shepherd abandoned everything to save. Number six, it's a humble look. It's a humble look. This summer, as uh, most of you know, I went on a big, long baseball trip. And uh, Jacob uh, Peterson came with me on the West Coast part of it. And this is us looking super unimpressed after the Dodgers game. We, uh, it's a sad state of affairs, this Los Angeles, California. They, um, the fans were just, they were super vain. Like they were, all, they were much more concerned about themselves than they were about the players on the field. Like when the Jumbotron would put one of them up on the, on the big screen, you know, the guys are kind of, you know, puffing out their chests a little bit, showing their muscles. The girls are, you know, fixing their hair, making sure they're, you know, doing the selfie duck look at the, the screen and trying to look all pretty and, and, and show everybody how, how good they look. Look at my, my tan, right? And then, and then they had these huge beach balls that they were like batting around during the game. They don't even know what's going on in the field. I have no idea there's even a baseball game happening. The Dodgers got crushed. They lost 13 to 3, and they're all just like, beach balls, you know, tan lines. Like, they all just loved whatever was going on in the bleachers and completely lost sight of why we're there. I'm not here to see you. I'm here to watch the players, and that's why you're supposed to be here too. We're here to cheer them on. I got real passionate. (laughs) See, the people of LA, they missed the point. And what Paul says here in verse 5, he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, not for your sake, for Jesus' sake. The ministry that we do is for the sake of others, but ultimately it is unto the glory of God for the magnification of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm not the main event. I'm not pushing my face onto the jumbotron. I have one purpose, and that is to serve and praise my God and my Savior. When we have an encounter with Jesus, when we behold him for who he is, we are transformed and we are humbled. 
and we get it, that it's not about us. It's not about us. Finally, number seven, it's a sovereign look. It's a sovereign look. We go back to the beginning of time in, on earth. The first day of creation, there was nothing. The world was dark and it was formless until God said three words. Well, in English, we have it translated as three words. He said, let there be light. And where there was nothing, there became something. And where it was dark, it became brilliant. And this was on God's own accord. No one told God to do this. No one nudged him and said, you know what we need is like some lights on around here. God looked into the darkness and he said, let there be light. And there was light. And this same God performed an even much more impressive miracle in my heart. My dark heart when he spoke into it and said, let there be light. And the only reason that I can gaze at his glory, that I can see the face of Jesus at all, is because he said, let there be light. This is what, exactly what Paul says in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Christ. There's a lot of prepositions there. He says the way that we can know the glory of God as seen in Jesus is when God turns the lights on. And that is the only way. It's a sovereign look. There is no boasting here. I didn't figure it out. I didn't get to God on my own wisdom or my own cleverness, putting it all together, reaching some mountain on my own climbing abilities. If any man is in Christ, he is a new what? It's a new creation. What does that imply? There's a creator. I didn't create myself the first time, and I certainly didn't create myself when I was born again. And just like the darkness on the face of the deep before creation, there was a darkness in our hearts before God came in and spoke light into it. You know, I look around every day all the time and I see people who don't know the Lord and I think, man, they're never going to come to Jesus. That can't happen. Like, they, they can't do it. And I have a friend right now who, you know, seeing that with and another friend that's trying to point her to Jesus and it's like, that's impossible. It's never going to happen. And you know, in a sense, I'm right. It can't happen horizontally. It's got to be a miracle. And every salvation it's a miracle. 96% of this world doesn't know Jesus. For that to change, it's got to be light shining in their dark hearts. And that's not coming for us. We speak the truth, but God is the one that shines the light into the dark heart. Only God can remove the veil. Only God can give sight to the blind. And only God can speak light into darkness. It is a sovereign look. So in conclusion, the, the life of a Christian is gazing at the glories of Christ. It's what it all comes down to. It's looking to him. It's a vision. It's a look. It's a clarifying look that we see God's glory clearly in the face of Jesus. It is a transforming look that we're actually becoming like Jesus, increasing glory in our hearts. It is a grateful look, one that we do not deserve. It's by his mercy. It's a purifying look as we become like him. 
It's a truthful look that we can stop hiding and be transparent. It is a privileged look that most people in the world have never had. It is a humble look that's a look unto him and a pointing of others toward him, not ourselves. It is a sovereign look that could only be provided by our God. And when we understand this kind of look and we see him, what results is what Paul said back in verse 1, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart as we walk this path that he's called us to, no matter how dark the day may seem. We do not lose heart if, like Stephen, we fix our eyes on Jesus. But it's probably your experience, like mine, that on a daily basis, just like Peter, when he was walking on the water toward Jesus, remember he was fine, he was walking on water until he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. And so often I take my eyes off of him. So how do we do that? How do we look at Jesus? Just three simple reminders I want to give to you today as you go forward in this week. If we're going to actually attempt to do this thing. Number one, to look at him in the word. Are you in the word? We can't go one day without eating food, right? I can't. He is our daily bread. Are we hungry for him? just kind of every once in a while we take a nibble oh yeah jesus and i'm not saying like do your devotions legalistically so you check it off the list and god is happy with you no open the word to meet him open the word to see him and like jacob was talking about yes last week with communion that he he is our sufficiency he is our very nutrients the life that we have and if we're not in the word if we're not seeing him as revealed as he revealed himself in the gospels and in 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 the bible how are we going to know him? And how are we going to become like him? I encourage you to be in the word and to be, dis- to be disciplined about it. Again, not to make it a checklist. So yes, I read the word today. We can read the Bible and just have our eyes hit the page, close the book, and off we're off to work. Reading the Bible is not some magical solution. But it's coming to him. And what I'd encourage you to do is on a daily basis, make some time, get some space in that day, and come to him and pray this prayer before you open the word. God, Show me yourself. I want to see you in these pages today. I promise you that he will answer that prayer. Secondly, look at him in prayer. Look at him in prayer. We walk through our day with this constant God awareness. We're going to start to see him in everything. We're going to start to see him in our relationships, start to see him in nature. We're going to start to see him in our trials. If we are walking with him in this constant dialogue that we're called to, pray without ceasing, ceasing, be constantly aware of God, it will change the way we see everything because we will be looking at this world through the lens of our Lord. Look to him in prayer. And finally, look at him with others. Do you have others in your life whose conversations that you have with them, that you point each other to Jesus? As iron sharpens iron. Do you have those kind of relationships? I have a few very precious relationships in my life that almost every time when I walk away from a meaningful conversation with that person, I'm encouraged and I feel like I know God just a little bit better. It's one of the primary ways that he's working in our lives is this community that he's called us to. And I urge you, if you don't have those kind of friends, to seek those kind of friends out, to be praying for those kind of relationships so that we can see him in each other. We're the church. And let us, the church, do his work of presenting every man and woman complete in Christ. And that work starts and it finishes by looking full in his wonderful face that we would see Jesus. Father, we have one prayer. 
one thing that we would ask. That we would see your beauty. Father, the veil has been removed. You've shown yourself to us. God became flesh. In this season, we think of that little baby in the manger that would become a king, that would become the savior of the world. Father, I pray that you would burn that image into our brain. That as we go out this week, that we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to we know him. We want to touch him. We want to walk with him. And we want to become like him. And Father, I confess that so often I take my eyes off of you. I take my eyes off of your son and I put it on other things because I believe the lie of Satan that these created things are going to satisfy me. These created things are going to give me what only you can. I just confess that, Lord, in front of my brothers and sisters and repent of that. And that we might be a church that points each other toward the Lamb. That we would be in your word. Father, make us a people that are hungry for your truth. That are hungry to see you and to know you. And to, to taste and see that you're good. And that we'd be walking with you every second of the day. That we can carry out this huge God-sized task of presenting every person complete in Christ. That they would know you fully formed in them. That we would be consumed with your glory and not ours. And we'd go out into this world as trophies of your mercy and grace. This is a God-sized task that we cannot do if we take our eyes off of you. May we be a church that keeps our eyes fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus. We want to see you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.